Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey there, team. Today I interview Paul Steely-White, Director of Development and Public Affairs at Link by Superpedestrian. As you may remember, I've had Asaf Biderman, the CEO of Superpedestrian, on last year to talk about their new scooter, but that was before they launched Link and recently won one of the Seattle scooter permits. The second mover advantage in the space continues to evolve and it was great to dig into this. Paul has been around the micromobility bike advocacy traps a long time, first at Transport Alternatives, then at Bird and now at Link. And like many we've had on the show, he's a bit of an OG of the space. I really hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. In terms of news, we've got two weeks to cover. Apologies, I've been sick for the last month and it finally caught up with me last week. As mentioned on this episode, New York City is making outdoor dining permanent and year-round, unleashing what could be the largest transformation of the city's public space since the advent of on-street car parking. Over 10,000 eateries have already extended their operations onto the curb during their lockdown. Now, more will surely join in, right at the same time that there's a big increase in the number of people using bikes and scooters to get to them. In Germany, it has been revealed that the households that own an e-bike has tripled since 2015, reaching 4.3 million homes or 11% of the population. The steady march from early adopters to early majority continues. Finally, anyone who listened to the show knows that I love micromobility for what I see as its ability to tackle emissions and transport. So I noted the results from a new climate study from the OECD's ITF, or International Transport Forum, closely last week. It finds that, on a per kilometre basis, life-cycle CO2 emissions from ride-hail vehicles are way higher than private cars. And it also shows that shared scooters have become more efficient, and while they still lag mopeds and e-bikes, they have a pathway to being lower emissions with operation improvements already in the pipeline. It's a strong early signal of the potential in the space as it matures. And now, here's Paul. Welcome back to Micromobility. I have with us today Paul Steely-White. How are you going, Paul? Really doing well, considering the circumstances here. (laughs) (laughs) Where are you? Uh, I'm a few hours north of New York City uh, in the Hudson Valley, Apple country. Um, So very lucky to to be up here. Um, But going into the city about once a week to do scooter demos for folks who were just in the Brooklyn Navy Yard last week. So... Awesome. Yeah. Nice. Well, yeah, I'd, um, I'd seen, I'd seen, uh, the, um, the video of that. I think maybe you had sent it to me, um, about doing the demos with, with the, uh, with the link scooters, which we will get into. But before we do that, I mean, I, you know, you're, you're one of these people. Um, actually there's been a couple of people who have said I needed to interview you. Uh, first amongst them, Donald Shoup, uh, who was the, <laughs> the king of car parking and car park policy. Shoop dog, um, as he's better known. Shoop dog, as yeah. he is, indeed. But look, I, I thought maybe what would be useful for listeners would be to t- have you take us through your journey uh, right from the kind of get-go and, and how you've got into this and now obviously what you're doing at, at Link. And, we'll, and then we'll just follow up and all. Yeah, yeah, sure. Like. Well, just great to be on the show. And, um, you know, I mean, my journey in this industry, if you don't mind, it really goes back to when I was about seven years old and I was learning to ride a bicycle for the first time. <laughs> I think I was the last kid in my class to do so and my my parents were going through a very nasty divorce at the time but it was just such a liberating feeling for me and just felt like flight and you know a lot of people describe bicycling in that way but for me it just was something that I carried through um you know riding a bike to high school I got made fun of I mean like my high school kids were like driving souped up muscle cars (laughs) and there I was on my bicycle so I was kind of a bike nerd from the get-go managed to um, straight out of graduate school land an internship with the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy in New York City, which is a tremendous organization, um, still, you know, even, you know, doing tremendous work around the globe. But, you know, my first gig was, you know, collecting bicycles from garages and basements in New York City and shipping them to Mozambique and Haiti. Uh, where then we would go over and um, show how bikes were just helping people get on their feet, climb out of poverty. 
um, and changing policy as a result, right? Um, and so, you know, that eventually landed me at Transportation Alternatives in New York City, where I was executive director for 14 years. And many of, I hope many of your listeners know about this, the tremendous work that TA No, has they done, don't. So, you know, I mean, yeah. I... I yeah, I would love for you to just explain a little bit more about the, the work I mean, of transportation. It's a, you know, it was founded in 1973 during you know the big oil crisis in the States and during the flowering of the environmental movement. So it was just this very citizen, you know, activism-led movement and organization that was really um, anti-car in the most in-your-face kind of way. Their first action was a bike mass bike ride to the headquarters of General Motors on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, right? So it's, it was this very... Um, irreverent social movement and over the years you know just has had tremendous success you know car free central park the first you know protected bike lanes in america happened in in new york city through you know ta's work and um most recently the 14th street car free 14th street people way um but it was just like in many ways i think became like the prototypical you know local advocacy group you know bike auckland which you have there is is, is a very similar group right very mm-hmm. activism oriented changing policy so very lucky to be mixed up with that group for 14 years and serve as their director um but you know it was a long time a long tenure and so just seeing the tremendous demand that you know, e-scooters were just taking cities by storm out west, you know, particularly Los Angeles. And, you know, I would place the bike movement in two camps, right? You had the purists who were just like, no, you've got to work up a sweat and there's nothing like the bike and e-scooter people are cheating. You know? yeah, and there, yeah, and yeah. Then, there were, then there were others who I think really saw the future and were just like, wow, um, e-scooters, you know, when they're done right, are really similar to bicycles and people riding them are having the same experience. So what an opportunity to like, grow the movement, you know, for, for the postcard city, for people-friendly cities. And so I was, of course, in the latter camp and was um, intrigued by this new startup bird. Um, and one of my friends in New York City, Ashwini Chabra, who is a former um, commissioner at the uh, uh, at the TLC in New York City, which is, you know, a city agency that regulates, you know, cabs and, 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 and yes, the you the Taxi and Limit Commission, is it? Exactly. Um, he's like, hey, I, I may have, no, have heard of them when I was working at Uber. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. They're, yeah they're, you may have heard of them. Um, but, you know, he was forming this, you know, dream team policy shop that also included Melinda Hansen, who was um, working at NACTO at the time. Um, and so he, I said, sure, it sounds fun. So um, mm. sort of latched on to, to the micromobility revolution in that way. Yeah. Awesome. That would have been a fascinating time. Because when did you join Bird? Uh, 2018, sort of like mid 2018, um, and then I, you know, caught up in that ill-fated, notorious Zoom layoff. <laughs> so they pretty much <laughs> decimated the whole New York-based, but you know, policy team. So you know, I was lost at sea for a couple weeks there, and um, and then. You know, I think anyone who works in the industry has always been intrigued by super pedestrian because, you know, they've been around for a while. And unlike a lot of companies that were sort of born, you know, to disrupt or born in sort of a VC boardroom, you know, they're incubated at MIT, you know, they come out of the urban planning department there. So um, I happen to know a few people who knew a soft bitterman, their, their founder, CEO. And so I started a month long campaign to basically convince a soft to give me a chance. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Awesome. And that was, I guess that was at the time when, because uh, when, when the interesting thing, I've, we've had a stuff on the podcast. Uh, sure. I think he, he was sort of mid um, episode in the middle somewhere. Uh, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but uh, it, 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 he at the time was, um, you know, they'd pivoted the company from doing the personally owned uh, bike wheel to doing scooters and the Copenhagen the Copenhagen wheel yes Copenhagen wheel which I still think is one of the most beautiful pieces of engineering I've ever seen uh, I mean it's just a stunning piece of thing agreed agreed okay the challenge was is that he said look we're, we're doing the um you know we've built these scooters and there's all this amazing stuff about the scooters and I remember it just blowing my mind the idea of um you know front front loading the scooters with technological development so that they had the ability to self-diagnose and that that would have such an impact on 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 things like operations um and at the time um he was pretty adamant that they were just going to sell the scooters and obviously they've subsequently gone on and 
they're not just selling the scooters, they're actually looking at launching their own, um, uh, the, the launch their own service. And, and to the point that Seattle has now picked Link as one of the, um, the providers there. So I would love to, you know, for, for you, if you could just sort of take yeah. us through quickly how that happened and, sure. and as, as far as you understand and then obviously your your role inside of that as well yeah yeah well you know um first of all just delighted to have the privilege of operating in seattle you know and and, and sort of to clarify the nomenclature so super pedestrian is the company link is the scooter um you know so it's it's the the link scooter you know by super pedestrian but you know i think the decision to be an operator right for super pedestrian to pivot and not just engineer these amazing micro vehicles, but also operate shared fleets. I think there were, you know, two things. I mean, I think one is the fact that to be an effective engineering, uh, you know, force in the industry, it's imperative that you get data coming in from the field, right? That like, there's all this operational data coming in. So to evolve your vehicle, to evolve your design, you really need to be integrated in, into the operations, to, you know, to just get, um, information on how the vehicle's performing and and the rest. I think you know the other the other piece of that is just being responsive to you know to cities. There's this really inseparability between the engineering and design and the geofencing and you know loading updates to the firmware. Right? There's just like a lot of iteration in running a fleet, and so it's really hard to draw a hard line between you know just providing scooters and tech and then being an operator. So I think we realized that they were really intertwined. And then the simple answer, frankly, is that there's just, you know, more value, I think, in being an operator, right? There's just, um, you know, more potential profitability, more sustainability. And I think there's also a, you know, a, a sort of a courting realization that like, you know what, no one's really doing it right. <laughs> so yeah. we want to step in and try to be the company that is, you know, truly being, you know, responsive to cities' needs as opposed to trying to just, you know, rupture things. Yeah. You know, I I agree with you. There hasn't been that many people who have done it really well. I, I I'm curious. You know, you've been in this industry. Uh, long, I mean, 2018. You're like an OG in this space. You know, um, <laughs> what what have you seen in the evolution of how cities are thinking about this space? And, I mean, it has. First of all, I just I think it has to be said that you know, Bird and Lime made some tremendous missteps, right? I mean. You know, I, 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 in many ways, I, I still love Bird, and you know, Lime is obviously a force. And but I hope they would also be honest and say that they made some serious mistakes. And I think one of them was that they really, in, in many ways, I think, took on and adopted many of the strategies of the automobile industry. Right? They said, like, look, we're, we want to replace the car. We want to achieve the post-car city. Great, but they did so, you know, by muscling onto streets by, you know, making safety, you know, subservient to other goals, most notably growth, you know, at all costs. Um, and if you look at, if you read, I don't know if you've ever, you know, Peter Norton, who wrote this amazing book called Fighting Traffic, which chronicles the advent of the motor car in the American city in like the 1920s and 30s. And you just look at the tricks that the the automobile companies pulled to, to really, you know, muscle into cities and aggressively, you know, replace um transit and it just pained me to see that same playbook being used to promote really an appropriate technology for cities and so you know i i think you know my experience in the in the industry for me is has really been in many ways defined by this tension i felt between knowing that micromobility is is so necessary and seeing the public demand for it but seeing it implemented in a way that was um not ideal. Yeah, I want to. I I do want to question a little bit. How much do you think the deployment strategy for flooding into cities was due to the fact that, like, a lot of the operators who were in Burton Lyman and a lot of those early scooter companies had come from companies like Uber and Lyft, where the strategy had been, "Hey, we can deploy into a city. We'll just kind of." push our way through because that was the sense that i got having yeah i think i think that that absolutely had something to do with it but you know i would argue that more relevant was was the fact that these companies were conceived as tech firms right and the whole idea of scaling um makes more sense when you have a true software product 
Um, but really, these companies are transportation companies. They're not tech companies at their core. They're operating in the public realm. They need cities to allow them to do that,、um, even though that may have been ignored for a time.、Um, and so, I, I think it's really a, it's a fundamentally different beast when you're operating, you know, on real streets in the real world as a transportation company. I mean, for one, safety has to be you know paramount. So, I, you know, I think a company like Bird or Lime or you know Super Pedestrian really does and should have more in common with a private bus operator. Than a software company, and they should manage the business accordingly. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I am uh, in. Uh, I concur with your, your <laughs> point. I do, and, and actually, this has been one of the things that we've talked about a lot on the podcast. Has been, you know, the early days of this. Obviously, was venture funded, and what it did is it proved out the marketplace, and it proved that there was demand there. But actually, that what we'll see over time is that these will end up being run like a public transport. Style service and actually we financed in, in large part also like a public transport service as well and I'm I'm curious you know ha- have you seen the how have you seen that business model evolve like the way, one thing that I still find interesting is that super pedestrian and or link are still receiving venture funding you know they're they're obviously a venture backed company they're they're trying to do this how do you think that are they are they being able to mate、um, The the sort of hey we've got expectations from venture investors with also we've got expectations from the cities that we're trying to deal with and stakeholders in that space and how are they doing that better than for example the previous companies? Yeah, you know, I mean, I've been lucky to you know be privy to a lot of the investor conversations that we're having you know at Super Pedestrian Link, and I was also privy to some of those conversations at Bird, and you know without divulging too much, I can just say that like. I think Bird was in a challenging position because they rocketed to such a massive valuation so quickly, and then they had to justify that. They had to prop that up, right? And so, in a way, they were sort of painted into a corner,、um, and, and they had to really deliver very quickly, lest you know things start you know fraying. And so, you know, Super Pedestrian, the fact that this is a company that's been around you know for seven years, they've been working on this. Technology of you know, and you mentioned it earlier in the conversation of you know self-diagnosing issues before they become safety problems.、Um, but it's even more than that, right? It's it's self-correcting some of the issues, especially the, like the electrical ones.、Um, but it's a slow burn, right? We're not a company that's trying to be a billion-dollar company in six months or even you know several years. We're really recognizing that it's a long game. And that demonstrating viability and sustainability, and demonstrating that you know we have the capacity and the values to work well with cities. You know, that's something that you have to earn over time. It's not something that you can just sort of like burst on the scene and grab.、Um, so, you know, I'm 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 content with that approach, and I think it's the right approach. And I and I think you know, four or five years from now, maybe even two or three years from now, I think we'll look back and see how the market shook out. And I think one of the key lessons is that cities are in charge, right? I think I think、mm. you know your point about Uber and, and Lyft executives, you know, running that playbook. I think you're absolutely right that there was a hubris there that we were God's gift and that we were going to come in and show cities how it's done. And in doing so, I think、uh, really got sideways, obviously, with a lot of city regulators. And I think it almost killed the industry, frankly. I think you know we were very close. I think at. at Sometimes to really just like having a couple big cities decide to say, you know, look, we're done. <laughs> you know, like well, it's, it's, it's still yeah. Almost, I I don't actually think we're necessarily past that point. I mean, yeah, what was the city in 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 Texas? I think it was was it Austin or well,、uh, yeah. I mean, Austin has actually、um, had a, a very interesting and and sort of long and winding road <laughs> love hate relationship with micro mobility, but. I think they've ultimately landed like, hey, this is a good thing, but we need to try to make it work. You know, there was a big CDC report looking at the safety issues, and we could have a whole, you know, conversation about safety and just just safety, right, and how that was handled and how it should be handled. But,、um, but you know, I, I mean, I might argue that we're we're out of the woods. I think that you know the NACTO report and then the NAPSA report that just came out, just showing how much. You know, m- more trips. You know, scooters are doing versus bikes. I mean, twice more than twice as many in the United States. And、um, you know, so I, th- I think there's enough public demand now, and I think enough examples of how one can do it right, 
that um, I don't think there's, there's an existential question for the industry anymore. I think there's there's definitely that question for particular companies, but um, I think we're out of the woods in terms of there being you know a threat to the industry. Yeah. Hey, um, I'm, I'm just really conscious. Uh, we kind of talked around uh, the technology from Link, and I've mentioned that obviously that, that we did the uh, the episode with with Asaf. But um, just for 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 folks who might be listening to this and going, yeah, I still don't quite understand. Do you want to just talk through what Link does differently, and in terms of what, what their technology is? Because I think I think it's really yeah. fascinating. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, really. I mean, and I think that's really at the core, right? It's it's like what's what's the vehicle? What what are its capabilities? And it really, um, and it's really the primary responsibility of an operator to have a vehicle that works, to have a vehicle that's that's safe. And you know, operators can partner with cities to build bike lanes and do marketing campaigns and do rider education. But really, it starts and ends with having you know a safe vehicle. And I think the story is really compelling in a way because Link didn't rush to market with with something. You know, super pedestrian before Link was even um, a thing at Super Pedestrian, said, what's out there now? So they tested all the existing vehicles. They put them through the ringer. They had this whole like automotive-influenced testing regimen, you know, water penetration, you know, various levels of impact testing, you know, and then really discovered that, okay, if we want to do this right, we're going to have to build a scooter from scratch. We can't just get stuff off the shelf. We have to build our own circuit boards, have our own firmware, um, really have full, complete control over the whole vehicle and embed all of our self-designed systems, which is a very ambitious undertaking. But what that allows you to do and what those many years of R&D now allows Super Pedestrian to do with the Link scooter is to um, do things like real-time geofencing, right? You can't do real-time geofencing if you don't have the onboard computing power to load your own uh, you know, GIS-based maps on, on the scooter and... Um, and have you know that scooter instead of communicating to the cloud where the geofence is, it can have that ability right on the scooter, right? So that allows us to do very accurate and very um, quick, you know, geofencing, which I think is paramount to operating, especially in dense cities where you know pedestrians, uh, you know, should be uh, at the top of the food chain. Um, but so really, the, for example, yeah. if someone goes onto a footpath, you'll know the difference between a footpath and the road on a on a on a small area. Like it within a street? Absolutely. Uh, we just did a, a demonstration in Hoboken with a bike lane, a footpath, and a street. And um, as they might tell you, I think we knocked their socks off just in terms of, of that capability. Granted, it is more difficult when you have um, you know many tall buildings in the way uh, and or a, a narrow demarcation between you know the footpath and, and the bike lane and or the street. Um, but we're still doing it very well, even with those challenges. And again, it comes down to like actually loading more granular base maps onto the scooters themselves that account for some of the local inaccuracies with GPS. So you've got to go in and, you know, take some measurements and take some readings and then load those informed maps onto the scooters. And then in addition, again, not having to rely on a cellular connection to communicate the geofencing rules and you load those right onto the scooter as well. So you know, that's, that's been something that has been really fun, actually, in the last couple of weeks during COVID is you know, making these sorties into the city and doing these geofencing demonstrations for skeptics and then, you know, having them come away and just be like, okay, wow, I'm like ready to invite scooters into my park or my business improvement district now because I can be relatively certain that you guys are going to stay in pounds, you know, so that's, that's critical. But, you know, but coming back to the, just the, the sort of general, you know, brains of the computer that allow... Uh, you know, super pedestrian um, and, and, and the linked scooter to anticipate safety problems. So for example, you know, if there's a battery issue, we know about it ahead of time before it becomes a safety issue. And so like, you know, water penetration is another one. Like we know if, you know, the, the circuits are, you know, encountering water and we can like address that right away before you have a braking issue or an accelerator issue, as you guys are familiar with there in New Zealand with some of the systemic mechanical issues that resulted i mean and that was really all about water penetration um but you know this is really just like foundational for shared fleet safety because just the obvious fact that you can't have someone inspecting a scooter before every ride I mean, that's just logistically impossible and it would be very expensive so there really needs to be to be a way for these vehicles to like self-diagnose and self-correct you know if possible or just shut down if there's a safety issue and so 
you know, I think very soon we'll be in a position to release some data on the first several months of operation in the seven cities where we are currently active. And, um, you know, the returns are very good. You know, I, I, the scooter is working as advertised and I think this will instill more confidence um, in city regulators who have been, I think, frankly, scared at some of the headlines and some of the safety, particularly the systemic safety issues that have beset, you know, some operators in the industry. Mm-hmm. There's a, um, the, the part that I really, uh, really vibed with when, when Asaf was talking about it was um, you could, I mean, when you're building a scooter, you could go and uh, kind of put, as you say, the sensor equipment the whole way through the scooter to try and work out, oh, is there, you know, are there sensors that are picking up if there's water or is there sensors that are picking up this? Or what you could do is you could say, we kind of understand how all of these things might react if that happens. And we'll have a computing unit that effectively just reads everything that's coming through. And if there's anomalies, then we work out what that is. And just the intelligence that it's baked into the vehicle, I think, was heads and shoulders above anything else that I've heard of in the industry in terms of how to do it. And it's relatively low cost. Like you're, you're going right back to sort of core level and saying, we're going to use intelligence um, and computing power to, to solve for a lot of these problems rather than necessarily adding a heap to the bill of material build costs for the, for the scooter. Which are, yeah, you know, yeah, I don't know if I that's mean, still the case, but, but I, that, that struck me as... Important. I think, yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, I'm just so impressed with, you know, our engineering team, our software team up in Cambridge. I mean, they're just like the best and the brightest. And, you know, the fact that we can land a scooter about the same price as, you know, the most advanced scooters of our, of our competitors, and we have, you know, this, this you know, additional capability is... Uh, is very attractive. And I think, you know, the cost of the scooter is, is really not the most important thing, right? It's really the ongoing maintenance, spare parts, labor, charging, right? And so what I think really distinguishes super pedestrian is just the lower cost and just the ongoing um, maintenance because catching an issue before it's a safety issue is obviously important for like preventing injuries and crashes, but it's also important for preventing expensive, you know, spare parts replacement. And so, you know, the biggest cost of operating a fleet is your, is your maintenance and your charging. And so the fact that our batteries, um, you know, go 55 miles is, is related to that. But more importantly, the fact that we can fix these problems before they become expensive problems means that we're not just returning profitability to our investors, but we're able to like be profitable at like you know one trip per vehicle per day in the market <laughs> uh which has everything to do with um maintaining service for low-income areas that are less lucrative for companies right uh has everything to do with you know staying in a city and not moving around and exiting markets when things get a little tough and so again coming back to the long game i think that technology is impressive up front but like Two years from now, three years from now, when these scooters are still on the road and the cost of operating them is like, you know, demonstrably less than our competitors, that's that's the proof that's in the pudding. So when you say, um, because the, the, the one thing that you said there, which just blew my socks off, wait, so one ride per day is still profitable? It is. How? Uh, well, it just, again, it boils down to the cost of operation. Um, you know, the fact that the scooters cost X, they last 2,500 rides and the cost of maintaining that scooter is less because we can anticipate fix, um, many times self-correct without having a human, you know, actually like crack the scooter open, um, leads to that lower operational cost. And so, you know, um, obviously it also has to do with how much you're charging for a ride and how much the market will bear. But, um, you know, the returns are, are, are very good. And I think that kind of sustainability is, I think, what's required to make micromobility viable, not just in downtown Los Angeles or New York, but in, you know, suburbs, um, lower density, lower income areas. I mean, for cities to really believe in micromobility, it has to be more than an amenity for yuppies, right? It has to be basic transportation that's getting people to the bus, that's getting people to the train, um, and now with the um, competition heating up in New York, RFP coming out in October, um, the New York City Department of Transportation has already signaled, like, look, we're looking for a solution here that's going to work in every neighborhood. Um, and, you know, I think New York is one of many cities that is not just, uh, you know, adopting more stringent equity requirements in terms of fleet deployment in low-income areas, but, you know, enforcing them strictly. So. 
uh, I think that's going to lead to, again, more, you know, sort of um, differentiation in, in, in the market. Yeah. Um, do you use swappable batteries just out of curiosity? You know, we don't. And I and again, this is another one of those rabbit holes that we could go down. I'm I think the jury's still out on swappables. Um, I mean, for one, you have to have at least you know one and a half or two batteries per per scooter to like you know swap them out. So you're not really saving you know money or or you know materials um, there. But the thing that really that really makes me concerned about swappables is just that they're much more prone to water penetration and tampering. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and when your battery lasts 55 miles as ours does, you're only needing to recharge them every, you know, four days or so. So, you know, I think it's good to experiment and sort of see, but like I'm a, I'm a little concerned when, um, people are saying, right, swappables are the future. Everything else is obsolete. It's like, Hey, you know, wait a minute here. Um, safety still has to be paramount. And, um, I haven't seen a swappable battery that, meets the, 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 the sort of standards in terms of water penetration and, and resistance to tampering. Yeah, that's, I, I mean, uh, Asaf, I remember when I, I don't think it was on that podcast necessarily that we talked about it, but I certainly have talked about it to him, uh, talked about it with him since, and he said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not on that boat. And it's just, it's just interesting because I, I, I would have thought everybody else that I've talked to in the operations game has said swappable is not, not the, it's certainly not a panacea, but it's re- but it really does deliver very substantial operational efficiencies. And it's, it's interesting to hear that from your perspective. I think I think that's true if your battery doesn't last very long, yeah. um, or truer if your battery doesn't last very long. Um, you know, and I and I think too what we're seeing with more mobility hubs and you know hardwired mobility hubs. If solar isn't working for whatever reason, you know, I I think we're we'll we'll probably see a mix of of, of vehicles. But, you know, I I think it's premature to to say that this is the new standard and certainly premature for cities to start mandating it. Um, But, you know, worth a look. Wow, cool. Okay, excellent. Um, Hey, I want to change tack a little bit because your mention mention of New York City and the fact that it's got an RFT coming um, and then your background, obviously, with transportation alternatives. There's a a piece of work, and this comes back to Shoop and uh, Shoop Dog, (laughs) <laughs> um, which is around parking and it's around delivery of new infrastructure. And um, obviously your background is in the space about how do we, how do we make uh, biking and or slash micromobility more attractive. And one of the big things, obviously, yes. is that if we think about street space allocation, um, we want to have space that we can safely scoot and or ride and or operate these vehicles. And oftentimes that comes at the expense of other things that are on the street and has to right yeah it's a zero-sum game where yeah it is a little bit of a zero-sum game and i'm and i'm just curious uh you know you've been in this game probably longer than uh, certainly longer than me and longer than i think a lot of people are you calling me old (laughs) mate 14 years is the head of that it's true yeah i was still in high school um yeah so so um just how you know how your thinking is evolving on that and how do you see us going from where we are today which is hey we're, we're starting to get micro mobility operators that you know hey man at, at one yeah trip, one trip per uh per day is profitable um so you can operate those those shared services in a way that's going to be you know it, it's it's they're here to stay if, as you say you're kind of out of the existential question you're out of the existential challenge yeah point. it's like okay cool how do we work out how to make those those businesses really run. Then you've also got on top of that, obviously, an explosion in the sale of e- e-bikes and standard bikes, especially during COVID. Um, yeah. And people wanting to be able to ride that place safely. And yet, we kind of come up against, okay, yeah, but we still have safe infrastructure challenges. And I'm curious, you know, you're, you're a policy person. You, you sure. spend a lot of your time lobbying governments yeah. around this stuff. Well, you know, um, how I, are you seeing that conversation evolve? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, um, I like to think about this analogy with railroads and, and land, right? Like the westward expansion of the United States had everything to do with the railroads, right? And the same, by the same token, the automobile in suburbia had this like, you know, nefarious symbiotic relationship, right? You don't get suburbs without the car. And, you know, what's happening now in New York City before our eyes right now during COVID, you have this new relationship between um, restaurants, real estate, and bicycling and micromobility, right? I mean, Transportation Alternatives just partnered with restaurants uh, and real estate to reclaim thousands of parking spaces and turn them permanently into street seating 
and 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 now more 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 bike parking, uh, more on street parking, and and you know, and more bike lanes and open streets. And so, you know, the restaurants and the real estate are saying, how are people going to get to our front door? Well, you know, especially now during COVID, it's 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 the bicycle, and I think um, just around the corner, it's 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 more electric scooters. I mean, and we're already seeing a proliferation of private electric vehicles in New York City uh, since COVID. So. Winning, winning the land battle in, in our cities and turning that car space into people space, into micromobility space, it's like the perennial chicken and egg problem, right? Because cities are reluctant to turn that space over until you can prove the demand. Well, now we're, we're, we're proving the demand and groups like Transportation Alternatives is organizing that demand, channeling it to decision makers and, you know, great gains are being made. I mean, acres, hundreds of thousands, you know, thousands of acres are being reclaimed for people in New York City right now. And, you know, Don Shoup, who, you know, as we know, you know, literally wrote the book on, on parking policy. Um, you know, he, he he's a big fan of uh, obviously repurposing car parking, charging for the parking that's left, right? So that you're putting that money back into the streetscape. And for him, that has really been uh, a key sort of political realization that the way to sort of win the political battle is to show people that you're improving the street you're putting that money back into like better sidewalks, you know, better bike lanes. And I think, you know, to your question too, it's not just about turning car parking into bike lanes. It's about wider sidewalks, street cafes, just everything that's going to make the city, uh, you know, work better for the majority. Hmm. Where, where, um, do you think that we, that this is going to, I mean, let me rephrase that. How long, do think do do these transitions take? If you look about it at, back at it historically, that you yeah. can get good quality infrastructure built that allow for these the, the, this this sort of proliferation. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think you know the the, the just built. They, <laughs> I mean, the, they got they giant, giant amounts of funding and yeah, whatever. Well, historically, what has taken time is you know the just getting lining these things up politically so that people are ready to make the change and that you know elected officials are ready to make the change and that agency engineers already. Um, but it's also taken time in terms of, you know, capital uh, design and construction. You know, the capital design and construction has largely been solved with just the tactical urbanism, quick build movement, Jeanette Sadakhan, Mike Lydon, you know, so many others just like proving like, hey, there's a, we can do this quickly. Uh, we can do it cheaply. We can redesign streets without, you know, many years of, of, of you know, rigmarole. Um, but, you know, Politically, it's 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 still historic. It still can take a long time. But I I'm encouraged by what's happening now during COVID. You know, never let a crisis go to waste. And just like the open streets and lanes that are being reclaimed, um, and I think it will accelerate. You know, I, I think now with talent being even more mobile in the remote, you know, Zoom era, right? Cities are going to be even more competitive for talent, with talent just being able to go wherever. And people are going to choose the cities that are the most livable, that, that give people a better quality of life. And so I think, you know, there'll, there'll, there'll be even more pressure on cities to get it right and to, uh, you know, realize that the car is a dinosaur in the city and that minimizing the car, maximizing life, you know, street life has everything to do with economic development. So I think that is, I think, is going to be a virtuous cycle that's already starting to kick off. Mm, mm, mm. And what do you, what do you think the role of operators like yourselves or Link is going to play a part in that? Well, if we're doing our job, we are you know bringing micromobility to the masses, right? Where anyone can get on a scooter, feel confident, feel safe. Um, and you know, I, I'm just so encouraged. You know, we were in Brooklyn Bridge Park just last Friday doing a geofence demo, and um, you know, people were just sort of coming up and taking test rides and uh i won't uh name names but um one one rider who is sort of known in the um on transit twitter i'll say large Where following was it? <laughs> um no i'll tell you it was doug gordon you know brooklyn spoke oh yeah, who's, yeah. who's a good yeah. friend and and you know he's, he's such he says such a way with words i mean he's a man of many talents but he said you know this feels instead of feeling like a flimsy flip-flop this scooter feels like a sturdy work boot and i was like wow that's the biggest compliment i've ever heard for this scooter and 
you know, I don't know if we would ever market it as a sturdy work boot, but like that's the feeling we're going for, right? You know, because I think that twitchy sort of flimsy feeling that you get on a lot of scooters, I think scares a lot of people. And so you know, being able to have something for the masses that like my mom would feel comfortable jumping on, right? It's just like what, what we need to be delivering. And then obviously everything else compliance wise, you know, just like working with cities, operating in equity zones, um, you know, being transparent with our data. Um, and, and I think to your earlier question about operating models and sort of where where it's going, I, I think we will see cities and transit agencies contracting this out like they might, you know, contract out bus service to a private bus operator or a ferry operator where they will own the service more squarely, um, choose how they want to subsidize the service and if they want to subsidize it in certain ways. Um but, you know, uh, instead of, you know, an RFP model, I think we're going to be more towards a public-private partnership model. And I think that's probably a good thing because I think that's the model that's going to get us more transit integration. Um, and I'm also a big believer in public transport, right? Like, like I don't like competing with public transport. I like feeding public transport. And so um, that integration with bus service and subway service will be more seamless if the city is owning the whole um ecosystem, if you will. So I think that's where it's going. Hmm. I, I mean, I, I happen to agree. I do, I do think that's where we end up. Um, it is interesting the differing views in the industry about how long that's going to take. I mean, if you were to put a, put a time frame on it, what do you, when do you start, when do you think that we'll start seeing contracts like that uh, starting to proliferate? I mean, you know, we, we might already be seeing it a little bit. You know, we were um, speaking with uh, uh, several regional transit groups in New York City recently about COVID and, and how they're moving people during COVID. And I think, you know, a lot of trans, transit agencies are very impressed with, you know, the, the already the share of trips in, say, Washington, D.C., scooter trips that are linking to transit. You know, what is it, like 20 to 30 percent? The fact that trip, tri, average trip lengths post-COVID are now, like, you know, at least on Link, it's like three miles now. And I think that's true for other operators that average trip length that was like before 1.2 is now creeping towards, you know, two, two and a half. And, and again, you know, we're, we're at three average trip. And so that's like, wow, that's, that's, you're not just linking to transit. You're actually providing, uh, you know, A to B service. Um, if you look at the fact that, you know, half of trips are two and a half miles or less in length. And so, you know, total trips. And so, you know, I, I think transit agencies are, are taking note and um, I think it's probably in the next six months, I think we will see major transit agencies owning, issuing their own sorts of contracts um, in addition to the DOTs that are already running it and maybe in some and hopefully in, in concert. I mean, London's going to be interesting, right? Because in terms of big cities, it's the big city where you do see um, this still, I think, at least in the States, rare integration between, you know, the street agency uh, and and the transit agency, which is really you know one agency in 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 in, in London and in cities you know in the, in the states it, again it's, it's usually two two different agencies and so um, you know London looks like it's going to be a little bit delayed till twenty twenty one but um, that's going to be one to watch. Yeah, um, and I take it you you obviously think that you guys have a, a a relatively good chance for all of these big cities. I mean this is. Yeah, getting Seattle was itself a boon. I mean, I, I was amazed when I saw that. I thought, wow, the 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 idea that there was an incumbency bias, I think, has been put to bed in the industry. And I'm just curious how you're thinking. Obviously, you've been in some of the early yeah. players. Yeah, well, I, I like being the underdog, first of all. I mean, um, do, ha- yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you cut out for a second there, but I, I think I understand. I mean, you know, Seattle, winning Seattle was huge for us. I mean, it was a very competitive RFP. You know, safety was paramount. We did have an opportunity to go in and demonstrate the scooter, demonstrate the geofence, and I and I think that made all the difference. Um, but, yeah, couldn't, couldn't be happier to serve there and, you know, uh, see what we can do. Um but yeah, you know, I think I think big cities uh, and big complicated cities with transit systems, you know, in many ways, I think it's it's also just like a cultural alignment, you know. Like, I just feel more at home with super pedestrian because they do have roots, you know, with the MIT Urban Planning Department. You know, there are a bunch of transit geeks and engineering nerds, and they've been at it for years. And I just think there's like a, um, you know, an inherent sort of tuning in to what 
really serves the city well, as opposed to like something that's just been conceived to, you know, make a lot of money very quickly. That's not to say we're not trying to make a profit. We, you know, we are, but I think there's something to the fact that, you know, I think we're the only East coast based, um, micro mobility, uh, operator, um, right now, at least in the scooter space. And so, um, you know, it feels like home to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, 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 if you may, are you able to divulge the, the funding uh, that you, you got recently? And then, you know, one of the other th- parts about um, the funding that we've talked about has been the fact that we think that funding, especially for scooters as capital expenditure, will actually shift towards debt funding rather than equity funding. And if there's anything you can reveal there about how the conversations with investors have gone for funding, for example, fleets as you go forward. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I've participated in in some really interesting recent conversations with investors, and um, you know, very soon we're we're I think we're going to be announcing some some good news, and not just in terms of um, you know size and sort of you know bottom line stuff, but like but like who um, and and sort of what entities are now believing in this company, you know, believing in, in the future of the space. Um, I wish I could say more. I just can't right now. No, no, that's um, okay. We, I will cover it on our news. <laughs> we do get it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's there's definitely um, an attraction, I think, to, to being a second mover in the space, right, where, you know, a lot of the mistakes, uh, not all of them, but, you know, a lot of the big ones, I think, have been made, and there's, and there's a lot of value to the hindsight that we all now have in the industry. Um, and... I think COVID has just been such a game changer. Um, I hate I hate to refer to COVID as as being positive in any way, but there is this silver lining that you know people are realizing how fragile the, you know the transportation system was, and that how having redundancies in our in our systems is a good thing. Having um, alternatives is a good thing, especially looking at like what's happening in New York with motor vehicle use now creeping up because people are still obviously averse to riding subways and buses. Um, and by the way, our earlier conversation on parking, I think we're going to be in a moment in about three or four months where there's going to be a motorist uprising in New York. They're going to say, where did all our parking spaces go? Why is my parking space now like an open air cafe, you know? And, uh, I think that's gonna, you know, engender some very interesting and I think necessary public conversations about the highest and best use of public space, especially that, that, you know, very valuable curb space. Um, but you know, yeah, I think we're in for some interesting times, but I think, you know, the investor community really understands that the postcard city is in many ways an inevitability, uh, and this market is not going away. Uh, and that, you know, the companies that can demonstrate, you know, sustainable, you know, um, operations, you know, viability in the long term are going to be the winners. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that doesn't answer the debt question, but I figured maybe you can't. <laughs> no, the debt. Sarah. I mean, de- yeah. debt, debt, debt financing is 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 definitely like where it's going. I think once once that's figured out, I think it's going to um, help companies scale more sustainably and um, and just get more scooters on the road. I, th- I think there's still some questions around you know the asset and you know how how reliable and durable is the asset. You know, I think that's also where I think we might have an advantage. Um, you know, cause y- you need to obviously collateralize that debt somehow, but, um, yep. it's being worked out. Yeah. Um, there was one final question that I had before we, uh, before we need to jump off, but that was around insurance because one of the big things that for, 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 uh, uh a lot of operators has been that insurance has been incredibly expensive In actual fact, just being able to even get like liability insurance to operate has been very challenging. And I'm curious, uh, whether or not the fact that your scooter is a lot safer has meant, that that means that you're you know that that's been a kind of a, a part of your discussion around insurance and liability insurance um and that might how that might have impacted bottom lines yeah i mean underwriters are definitely taking note you know and i think to me like a really positive evolution in, in on this particular issue is is you know insurance interest talking directly to cities you know getting incident data uh, not just from operators, you know, but from cities and from, you know, rigorous local studies that are capturing all the incidents, you know, um, we've all seen operators releasing their own safety reports and boasting about how infrequent injury injuries and incidents are. But let's remember that those are all reported incidents and that most injury crashes on scooters aren't reported to the company, right? They're, they're captured by a hospital, they're captured by emergency response, 
and they turn up in, you know, epidemiological studies, you know, where they've been done. And so, you know, getting better data on all of that is, 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 is happening. And that's, and that's, and I think that's a good thing because I think it's going to shine a light on operators who have better safety records, but let's all be suspect of safety reports that are coming from companies with only the reported injuries to them. Because again, that's not um, capturing even half of, 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 of what, of what has happened. And so, um, you know, that, that, that's an important point, but I think what's going to happen with insurance, I hope is that people realize that, um, when done right, operating a scooter is no more dangerous than riding a bike or a shared bike. And there's really no special insurance requirements that, that, you know, uh, need to be brought to, brought to bear and that the cost of insuring the business, um, won't, won't be, you know, a drag on, on, on profitability or, or a significant one. Yeah. Awesome. Excellent. Well, look, uh, we're kind of up against time, but I just wanted to say thank you so much because this has been a fascinating conversation with somebody who's been around for a while and knows the space kind of inside out. So um, I, I, I just I hope the audience really appreciates it as much as I do uh, that, that, that um, to, to get your time. And, and it's a it's a wonderful community, and I, I just love the micromobility space, and, the, and it's almost like a international family. You know, we it's just a brilliant brilliant community and um i also just while i have you i have to say um hello to my friends in auckland um jolisa grace gracewood uh and barbara cuthbert from uh, bike auckland what a wonderful organization and uh i've been there twice and just come away totally inspired so um you oh, know awesome. you have some great local advocates there yeah they are really 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 great um they're very helpful to me as well with some of the advocacy work that i do here in new zealand and wellington so um yeah hi guys um <laughs> Marvelous. All right. Hey, well, thank you so much. If people want to track you down, Paul, uh, how would they do that? Are you on Twitter? Yeah, uh, P, P. Steely on Twitter. Um, the letter P as in Paul, S-T-E-E-L-Y. Um, you know, shoot, you know, give me a follow. I'll follow you back. You can shoot me a message. I'm also very active on LinkedIn. Um, it's funny. I, I've actually just really been a LinkedIn almost exclusively in person lately. I just seem to get a lot more traction with folks and people seem to actually take the time to sort of dig into stuff. So, um, there it is. Excellent. Great. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate your time and look forward to having you on in the future. Thanks, Oliver. Cheers.